The Money Show. Other people's money. One of my favorite things to do on The Money Show is to get into other people's money. Of course, tonight, Alan Not Craig Jr. joining us from our Cape Town studios. Uh, he's uh, the former Mixit and iBurst CEO. Tonight, we get to pick the pockets of a serial entrepreneur, Alan Not Craig Jr. Well, by pick, I mean we get his view on money and his philosophy on handling finances. Now, Alan Not Craig Jr. is also well known for launching Project Isizwe, an NGO advocating for free Wi-Fi for all uh, low-income communities. Now, before that, though, he was the 30-something-year-old leading the sale of Africa's biggest chat messaging apps, Mixit, at the time. He joins us tonight for other people's money. Uh, Alan, welcome uh, to The Money Show. How's it, Thanks very much for having me. Look, as a tech entrepreneur, I have to ask, are you big on cash or is it <laughs> digital is king in terms of money? <laughs> My experience of money is, uh, as far as my own personal uh, kind of decisions around investments are, is I must just leave it in cash or must do my own thing, but everything else I lose money. So I'm not good at giving advice around investments. (laughs) I wouldn't say that. Let's get into, um, you know, Pretoria, where you were born and grew up. You know, please tell us Mm. about your upbringing there, uh, what kind of upbringing it was, and the money conversations around the table. I mean, your father at the time was a CEO of Telcom, and your mother was a qualified teacher. So what are some of the unique money lessons you picked up? Uh, Just to give you uh, some factual corrections. Sorry, man. Um, My mom was a teacher, yes, and my dad was actually a post office employee. And when I was about 21 or 18, 21, around about there, he became the CEO of Otacom. Uh, oh, no, we'll get definitely get into yeah. that and how the, 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 the money switch uh, changed yeah. the mentality as well. Yeah, yeah. it was very different. Yeah, very different world to post office days. But yeah, I mean, we just grew up in Pretoria. My parents were actually foster parents to start with at the Louis Boat Home in North Pretoria. And then we ended up moving to a place called Wingate Park. And anybody who's ever been there knows it's not known for its architectural beauty. But, you know, I went to a nice government <laughs> school and carried on with life, you know. And growing up as a young man, what are you taught around the household? I mean, are you taught to keep your lunch money or, you know, you're not really uh, ushered in into the world of money just yet? No, I, uh, I read your preparation questions and some of them were quite tricky. One of them was, what is my attitude to money? And I always remember being a kid, my dad uh, used to give me a hiding or, or shout at us if uh, we didn't switch off the lights when we left the room. So there was clearly some consciousness around mm. electricity but uh but i also don't have a fear of poverty you know i don't know how my parents managed to do it like they managed to give me the safety net around me that didn't make me feel like we, we were poor or anything it wasn't i don't think we were spoiled but they gave me this they protected me from their own financial stresses whatever they were and you, of course, told us earlier that your, your dad had been working at the South African Post Office at the time, mm. and you explaining that money might have been tight, but you didn't know about it. So how does the attitude change then uh, when he works his way up uh, to being uh, a CEO at Telcom? Vodacom, yeah. Um, he, uh, yeah, it changed a bit. I mean, I was at university, so I, I wasn't really living at home, um, but definitely things changed <laughs> for him. And I probably um, changed a little bit with all of that. I mean, I never really forgot the value of money. I think it's kind of hard to forget the value of money if you've been raised understanding the value of money. But yeah, I think his lifestyle definitely changed a little bit. I mean, my baby brother probably had a slightly different upbringing to what I did. But um, (laughs) when when you're out of house, it doesn't really change your life, you know, if your parents are doing well. Were you like, oh man, look, I didn't have it as easy as you are now. Nah, not at all. I actually think I did have it easy. I think life gets a bit more complicated when there's 
bit more money washing around. But also my parents got divorced, uh, you know, just after I left school and my brother Matt had to deal with all that. And I don't think that was so much fun. So um, I don't want to get into personal stuff, but the yeah, gist of it is of that I don't, I don't think it was, I think it was better for me to have slightly less money in my upbringing. You then, uh, you know, grow up and uh, pass matric. Um, why do you choose to go, go into accounting particularly? <laughs> fear. Fear <laughs> of my father. You know, my dad uh, basically gave me no free choice. Well, he gave me lots of choice in my life. He said, you can pass matric. And if you pass, you can go to varsity. And if you don't pass, you're on your own. And if you go to varsity, you can study accounting. And if you don't study accounting, you're on your own. And you can pass accounting. If you don't pass accounting, you're on your own. And it's carried on until I was 25 and became a chartered accountant. <laughs> and you were still on your own. So, well, then I was on my own. I was on my own feet. You know, I could make my uh, make a living by myself, and I'm very grateful to my father and my mother for for the choices they made for me. That's amazing, man. You then moved to the U.S., which I think was a time and a period where, like I'm saying, you were on your own and you discover your own ways with money. What are some of the quirky money stories that you picked up then? I know the rand was much stronger back then, but you yeah. land there in the U.S. and what do you discover? No, it's a different world there. You can't. Uh, you can't. You can't have close to the quality of life you have in South Africa for the same bang for buck. And uh, we were with about 40 other article clerks from Deloitte's. My, my wife, we got married the last day of articles. We both went on the secondment with a whole lot of other South Africans. And we lived in this block of flats and we'd kind of all pooled together every night for a beer. And we'd, we'd kind of wipe out the Chinese restaurants that had all-you-can-eat specials. And there was just no ways you could live in New York and, and live a normal life unless you were earning a hell of a lot of money. And I didn't feel like I was ever going to be on that career track. I didn't have the talent, the potential, the intelligence, the hard work ethic. And it actually made it easier for us to decide to permanently base ourselves in Joburg because, you know, having tasted a little bit of the cost of living outside of South Africa, you, you kind of ask yourself, why would you make that compromise in your quality of life when you can make, make, uh, make money in Joburg? Where, you know, we're the city of gold. Tell us more about the U.S. I mean, how much did you really have to stretch that one dollar a buck, you know, as coming in and still doing your articles at the time? I mean, I, I've actually tried to block it from my mind. It's a traumatic period of my life. <laughs> it was freezing cold. <laughs> my wife was crying every day when she got home from work because it was the feet were freezing. It was like windy and and uh, you know, oh, that's rough. like a, a beer at the time was the equivalent of like two hundred rand now. You know, so. Imagine Whoa. you go out for a beer and it costs you 200 bucks. I mean, you actually just would stop drinking beer. So, um, you know, that wasn't what I wanted to do. Uh, we had a great time. I don't regret it. And Deloitte's was a wonderful experience. And I'm big, also very happy and grateful that they gave me a job and they never fired me along the way. And we had these great experiences. But um, I had that taste of, of not living in South Africa. And I, I decided it's better to live in South Africa. You then come back to South African shores. Um, how long does your accounting career last before you go into <laughs> entrepreneurship no it didn't last i uh, we did a honeymoon my wife and i backpacked around the world we on a, like you know kind of a backpacker kind of budget and then we came back to south africa had no money and i thought i'd get a job at a bank because that's what all cas do they go work for banks and um or at least my friends did and rmb i interviewed with rmb and they, they they you know they didn't find me back and i was kind of left and i think what most entrepreneurs do is you know they can't get a job, so they start a business. And I was quite lucky that um, I was introduced to a businessman in Joburg who gave me a, a break. He, he kind of, uh, we kind of started a little business doing cell phone tracking. And ma I managed to, you know, kind of get into the cell phone industry through the back door without actually working for Vodacom. I mean, I don't know if you've ever met my father. He's quite a formidable human being. I didn't want to actually work yeah. for him. And uh, MTN wasn't going to 
they weren't exactly phoning me to offer me a job. So I couldn't like work for one of the big guys and I managed to have an opportunity to start a little business in the cell phone kind of value-added services space, doing cell phone tracking. Was that a great value for you to to try and make it out on your own without having yeah. to pick up the phone and say, look, uh, I'd like to come into ICT, let me call my dad. Uh, I'm sure it'll be easier passage, but you decided to, to go at it the hard way. Decided is a strong word. <laughs> I don't, really, <laughs> don't recall having many choices. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was much easier than kind of feeling like I went on my dad's coattails. But I mean, the honest truth is, I don't think if I would have been given that opportunity if it hadn't from, uh, been for my dad's, you know, track record and reputation and position in the industry. So it took me a long time to kind of get over those internal insecurities. But uh, yeah, I was very, very lucky to get into the game without necessarily, you know, taking a job from, you know, my old man, which I think, you know, a lot of people wish they could do, but it, it does hurt your self-confidence if you have to do that, you know. Uh, and the story also goes that you asked your father to take you off his will. Um, firstly, how true <laughs> is that? And, and why was there such a desire? Uh, no, I mean, that's a very personal thing. I'm not sure how that got out there. But um, I, the long and the short of it, I never wanted money to come into my relationship with my parents. That's, that's just great. And how did that decision, um, uh, you know, foster you in more into entrepreneurship and also making your own <laughs> money decisions. And I'm speaking mostly about the relationship with maybe consulting uh, with your father who had been in the higher echelons of business then to say, you know, how does one yeah. grow into it? How does one expand and also, you know, stick around in, in entrepreneurship? Yeah, no, um, it's quite dangerous. You shouldn't take away a safety net when it's there. So, um, you know, like if you've got a safety net, you shouldn't begrudge it. And you sh I mean, being an entrepreneur really is about taking risks. So if you've got, you know, parents to fall back on or something to fall back on, I think that's uh, a privilege and, a, and something to be, it's a blessing. You shouldn't uh, scoff at that. Um, you know, I, somehow my parents managed to um, instill in me this kind of feeling that they loved me, like really loved me. You know, I, do, I, I still to this day I feel loved, you know, can't really explain why. And I also feel like they would they would catch me if it really came down to the, you know the final you know end of the road and and, and I needed somebody just to catch me uh, they would be there for me, um, but they never did and I think that's the real blessing is you know parents that love you but don't catch you because you've got to catch yourself and I had one or two moments in my career financially where I almost went off a cliff and I was like waving like hello hello pick me pick me hello I need a bit of help you've got grandchildren with me blah 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 and, um, <laughs> and my, my parents were like. Why are you phoning me? You know, I'm like, well, I'm subtly hinting. And to my credit, my credit, I never asked for anything. And to their credit, they never offered. And I managed to bail my way out of my own problems and gave me self-confidence. You know, I think if you haven't solved, if you haven't saved yourself, you'll never feel self-confident. But if you don't feel like someone's got you back, it's hard to take risk. And it's one of those gems. We are talking to Eleanor Craig Jr., the former Mixit and Iber CEO. Yeah. And we're picking his mind on other people's money tonight. The Money Show. Other people's money. Welcome back to The Money Show. If you've just joined us, we're picking the pockets of Alan Not Craig Jr., the former Mixit and Iber CEO, and uh, getting his philosophy on money. So uh, let's just pick up the conversation here, Alan. Um, when did you feel that you were a successful entrepreneur at one point, or what deal sealed that for you? I think this year. I uh, sold out of Heritel, um, and I made a bit of money. And I think that's really the only definition for entrepreneurs. You know, it's not just building a business. It's actually making money for you and your partners. My first, uh, my first exit was back in 2008. It was self uh, I made a lot of money for my partners, but I definitely suffered from something called imposter syndrome where you, you think you just got a bit lucky or maybe yeah, it was my dad yeah. or whatever. 
And, and you know, I think only when you've done it twice that you, you can say to yourself, you're the real deal. So Vumatel uh, buying Hero, um, Herotel, uh, 45% stake there, um, you know, Herotel will be able to use that particular investment to accelerate the expansion. It looks like a great deal, but do you decide to sell and not be part of that business? Why is that? You know, it was a bit of a tussle. Um, I, I have an enormous amount of respect for Dietlof Marais. He's the uh, CEO of Vumatel and Petr Ace. I mean, he's the chairman of CIVH. I mean, I've known him since I was like 13 years old. I love those guys. They're like uncles to me, you know. And um, But I am unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I can't, you just, people do try to tell me what to do, get upset because I don't do it. And uh, and I've seen that movie once or twice where, where I ended up in bed feeling, you know, I was being controlled. It doesn't end well for myself or the other person. And uh, we kind of, I mean, I, I've had a massive passion for pushing fiber into townships the last couple of years. And we had this disagreement around strategy for in, internally, which ultimately led to this kind of me exiting. So um, I'd say it's more just about me wanting to do something that not everybody else wants to do. And how did you battle with the decision of selling uh, Hirotel? Because, of course, Vumatel has the backing of, of bigger players and you mm. always want to see new entrants and you want them, you want to see them stay. Um, you know, so when a big player comes knocking, the decision as an entrepreneur to sell or not to sell, how tough is that? It wasn't hard for me. I, you know, I think, uh, you know, Vumatel, CIVH, they're an amazing organization. They've got great people. They've got a lot of money. Uh, and that's a big thing. You don't want to, to sell your staff, et cetera, and your business into an organization that's not well funded that, you know, because then people's livelihoods and families are jeopardized. So it's amazing home. I mean, there's just no question about it. It's just... I was hoping to be that home myself, um, but I didn't have access to the right kind of capital to do that. And, you know, lesson learned, you know, don't start a telco unless you've got a lot of money. So you, you, you particularly marked this particular transaction as, you know, a point in your life where you thought, I'm a great entrepreneur, but you've been involved in a lot of businesses, Ibers, mm. Mixit, mm. and I'm mm. sure around the dinner table, people will always ask you about the <laughs> 330 million rand, yeah, yeah. a multi-million rand. Um, Thank you for the reminder. This is nice. Good story. <laughs> Look, I have to ask. Uh, <laughs> I know, it's cool. Mixit, what, do, you, do you think that was one of your worst money decisions or do you see yeah. that as just a business progression and sometimes these things happen i think we i was personally incompetent in many ways uh, i think some of our strategy was bad some of my execution was bad i feel regretful every day the money we lost i mean i lost money uh, but my partners lost money and i feel bad they trusted me and we just didn't deliver the goods so it's not it's not my proudest moment um you know in some circles i'm known as a weapon of mass financial destruction but um uh, you know Live and learn. You know, I've, I've done everything I can to learn from those lessons and um, I've had a lot of businesses. You know, we've been through a lot of things. We've lost a lot of money. We've headed out of the park once or twice. And I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a more seasoned veteran now. You know, I mean, it's just doesn't mean I'm not going to make mistakes, but I yeah. try not to make the same mistakes. So you walk into a room of investors and you're saying in some circles people <laughs> consider you a yeah. person of financial destruction. How mm. do you convince them? <laughs> To you know, get into new projects like ECs where uh, and initiatives that are really great in terms of getting internet access to uh, more vulnerable communities. Yeah, look, you know, I don't like this vulnerable community or low-income community thing. It's just townships, you know. So it's not different from anyone else. It's just a township. A township is a very highly populated community. Um, and I will start my conversation by starting with you know saying I'm a weapon of mass financial destruction. <laughs> you know, you know, you don't run away from what you are. <clears throat> but I'm not actually. I'm a, we a weapon of of opportunity, you know, um, finding opportunity, exploiting opportunity. 
and I try to like, I kind of quickly tick off all the boxes, lessons learned. So I think that gives people comfort that I'm not going to make the same mistakes on the, on their uh, ticket. And then uh, you know the township fiber opportunity is enormous. You know, in, in in seven or eight years since Vumental started, a fifty billion rand fiber industry has been created. I mean, all credit to Neil Skuman and those guys. Incredible, they triggered a fiber industry. But that's less than twenty percent market penetration. Fifty billion rand. That's less than twenty percent market penetration. Wow. You've you've got seventeen million homes in the country. Three million are passed. Fourteen million are in townships. Fourteen million homes are not passed. That's a two hundred billion rand opportunity. When you tell people there's a lot of money to be made, all you got to do is figure out how to make it. It's it's a little bit easier raising money. And, you know, uh, people will be telling you about price points. I mean, the middle class are more likely to pay 350 or north of 350 for mm-hmm. internet access. How do you sell the business case then for townships and how people can make money coming in <coughs> at the lower end? I think it starts with understanding the difference between wireless and fiber. Wireless always have a congestion issue. So whether you're 5G or you're satellite and you're beaming down internet from the sky, you know, it doesn't work if there's lots of people living near one another because of congestion. You're kind of trying to spray a lot of wireless across everybody and they're all uh, interfering with one another. You need, to, uh, you need to reticulate internet to every single home and only fiber can do that in a densely populated community. So if you're in a rural community or a farm or something, then, uh, you know, 5G, wireless, any wireless, whether satellite or 5G works. But in a densely populated community like Guguletu, you will never be able to give everybody un- streaming Netflix on wireless because it just takes too, too much capacity. So that's the starting point. And the second point is because fiber is the speed of light, it's pretty much infinite in terms of speed. You have no bottlenecks and congestion issues. And it costs the same amount of money to run fiber down a street that has 10 houses or you know, 100 houses. And, and a township has kind of density between 13 and 40 times more than a leafy suburb in South Africa. So if it costs you the same amount of money to run down 40 houses and 10 houses versus 10 houses, well, you can actually charge a retail rate of 25% and still make the same margin because it's a sunk cost on your capex. And your running costs are virtually zero because it's just a piece of glass hanging in the sky on a pole. Um, so, you know, when you, and then you can reduce, reduce your retail price and your retail price becomes more affordable. You get more customers and then you can tap into these uh, 50 or so million people in South Africa that live in townships. Do you think then investors are still stuck in that frame of mind to say there's a lot of risk and because there's a lot of risk, we can't put in a lot of money? Why is it not easy to, to fund such uh, projects in, in the country? Uh, I actually don't know if it's that, not that easy. I think, you know, now we're trying to actually fund it. It is kind of, it's not impossible. I do think that the traditional financial institutions, uh, that's where the real money is, uh, you know, pension funds, banks. And I'm very glad they're quite conservative. Otherwise, we wouldn't have pension funds and banks. I mean, we'd be like Argentina going bankrupt every year. So, you know, we have excellent financial uh, sector, excellent yeah. fund management sector, and they are quite conservative. What they need is somebody in the private sector like us to take a bit of risk with our own ammo, our own cash, and prove the model so that they can follow. And then there's an enormous wave of capital available to do township fiber. So what we're actually trying to do right now with our own money is just prove that if you provide uncapped fiber in the home in a township, people will buy your vouchers and you'll make enough money. And just in terms of going back to the money lessons now, a lot of people will look at uh, past CEOs and people who have run major companies and say, ah, oh, this guy does not have the same money problems as, as <laughs> me. You know, What are those day-to-day money problems that you also come across? Dude, I by no means think that I've had a difficult life financially. Uh, I mean, I went to a government school and that's about as difficult as it got. But, so I'm not sure I can relate to everybody in the country around monetary problems. But I remember when I was a kid, I used to, well, when I was 18, I used to put five rands worth of petrol in the car, you know, just to get me to my girlfriend's house. Um, and I remember buying ICs at first break, well, you know, and when I was in primary school, I bought ICs for like 
10 rand for like 100 ICs and then you sell them for <laughs> 20 rand. And then I'd take the 20 rand and buy another 100 ICs or whatever, you know. So I remember part of my life where those numbers were important numbers and those numbers don't feel like important numbers anymore. I think it just all changes. But the meaning of money to me is not what you can buy. The meaning of money to me is optionality. It's saying that it gives me the freedom to make choices about what I want to do with my life rather than be a slave, um, which is a, it's not just about having money. It's about keeping your lifestyle as simple as possible and as frugal as possible. All right, that was uh, Alan Not Craig, the former Mexit and Iber CEO, of course, currently running the NGO project Isizwe, uh, bringing free Wi-Fi to all low-income communities. Of course, he's the self-proclaimed financial weapon of mass destruction, but uh, of course, we'd like to call him a great disruptor and innovator. And of course, he was our guest tonight on Other People's Money.